0: Morning. Good morning. I want to continue with our exploration of the core text and core practices that are really the foundation for Spirit Rock and for our um, our practice together. Uh, the teaching of the four foundations or the four establishments of uh, mindfulness, which usually translates mindfulness uh, sati, this uh, quality of a discerning, present-centered awareness of what is happening in our experience. Uh, and our experience can mean both our inner experience and our outer experience. And this, I think, is the uh, fifth of the uh, talks on the, uh, on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. The previous four are on the uh, Dharma Seed website. And uh, I typically do a very brief review of where we've been. Uh, Today, I want to particularly focus on the third foundation of mindfulness, but with a significant uh, review of the second foundation, uh, which we looked at last time. So, uh, briefly, the the four foundations give these very, very central practices, which are uh, so crucial, I believe, uh, for our having this practice be efficacious for our well-being, for our freedom, for our greater uh, clarity of mind, for our ability to have wise responses to whatever happens in our lives. And it's uh, wonderful that there's actually a distinction into four ways of practicing mindfulness. I imagine we could add further ways, but these were the four that were pointed out Particularly, you know, almost 2,600 years ago by the historical Buddha. And they're uh, mostly very commonsensical. So, the first foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of the body. And we looked into that, I think, in two sessions. And this is very, very central, uh, I find, in my own experience and in working with people for bringing mindfulness into the flow of daily life, into the flow of daily experience, that particularly it's such a mental culture. Our own conditioning for most of us, maybe not all of us, is highly mental so that it's a pervasive experience that what are we doing during the day? We are thinking a lot. (laughs) We are thinking of this, thinking of that. What should I do? What's my to-do list? What should I do now? What comes next? What did I just do? <laughs> oh my gosh! Uh, oh my gosh! What will happen? Oh, look at that! You know, and just this perpetual thinking. Again, the, the Thai teacher, uh, Buddha Dasa, asked for his view of Western civilization. Said, "Lost in thought." <laughs> you know, and again, there it's not to say that's uh, simply negative. That's uh, would be uh, very one-sided. Obviously, there are a lot of virtues to our thinking process. We can uh, often plan well, do things well, finish our to-do list on a good day, and so forth. And um, and yet, the uh, ability to be present and to see what's happening in our experience is harder in a culture which emphasizes thinking so much. It's simply the way it is, I think, uh, certainly f- probably for most of our experience. And that's why... When we meditate, one of the breakthrough experiences that we may have initially in our meditation is we, in a sense, uh, calm the thinking process and open more to our senses and to uh, you know, and to our emotions. And that w- was certainly my experience in first uh, meditating, that I could actually be with the body uh, in a way that I had almost never experienced. I could be with body sensations, I could be with my senses when there was a sunset, to be with a tree, to be with a flower, and could really open to the various senses without being dominated by thinking, without, uh, as in my previous experience, being with a sunset and thinking about what I would do tomorrow, (laughs) which uh, once I saw that experience, I said, I haven't really experienced sunsets very, uh, very fully. You know, and there's some sadness there and so forth. But our practice with the breath, with the body, is very much uh, an essential training, especially in this culture, to have a way to break the monopoly of the automatic mind, which is so strong for many of us. Um, again, not for all of us and not for all of us all the time but very pervasive in, um, in this culture. And so the, the mindfulness of the body, uh, especially in that context, plays a really crucial role and could be an emphasis that we might have for a whole year or for many weeks to really say, I'm just going to strengthen mindfulness of the body. And in the uh, text itself, which, which I gave out uh, several weeks ago, there are 14 different practices for mindfulness of the body. We tend to emphasize three of them. We tend to emphasize mindfulness of the breath, which is our standard meditation technique. And we emphasize mindfulness in different postures mindfulness in uh, sitting, standing, walking, and lying, just to be able to be aware uh, in those postures. And then mindfulness in different activities. Can I be? aware of the body when I'm walking? Can I be aware of my body experience when I'm washing the dishes, when I'm eating, and so forth? And those are those are the main practices offered uh, generally through the first foundation. And again, it could be a very valuable use of our practice to say, this is really important. I want to focus on this for, for quite a while. I think for myself, it was such a primary theme initially. I did focus on it a lot. And in retreats, it was a very strong focus when I was initially practicing. And later, I also had a period where I focused for about two years almost entirely on mindfulness of the body. You know, that was, you know, I didn't even focus on the breath. I just focused actually on awareness of the whole body in my meditation and in daily life. And that was very beneficial and really helps to have the body be present in the midst of activities, including action and interaction, including speaking. That is possible, and we've emphasized this sometimes when we've looked at speech, it's possible to have both inner awareness and outer awareness at the same time. It's not a a beginning practice, but it's possible. When the mindfulness gets well established, we can start having an inner mindfulness at the same time that we're interacting with others. And of course, that that starts to bring the mindfulness into more and more of our daily lives. Not easy, not a beginning practice, more of an intermediate or advanced practice, but very, very possible when the mindfulness is uh, strengthened. But we, I think, the the encouragement would really be to keep it simple. You know, it might be to you know do a practice like uh, I did when I was first practicing. I was a student. I didn't have a car. I walked a lot. I said every moment I'm walking around is just going to be awareness of the body. You know. I don't have to be thinking of things. And that, you know, that's an example. You could do that. You could say every time I'm walking, let me be aware of the body. So that's the first foundation, really, really crucial. Last time we looked at the second foundation of mindfulness, which is mindfulness of feeling tone, uh, which again would be of the foundations of mindfulness This is the one that is, as it were, the least obvious, right? The third is mindfulness of, we would say, of thoughts and emotions. And the fourth, I like to describe as mindfulness of patterns of experience. both. I like to see it both as uh, mindfulness of personal patterns and universal patterns. So it could be that we really start noticing, "Oh, I tend to get triggered when this happens. My mind tends to go off when someone I think is not respectful, or someone doesn't listen to me, or something doesn't go well, or or more than three things have not gone well today, <laughs> you know, and then my mind seems to, it goes off and somewhere, right, and it gets triggered, and there's a storyline. So it's uh, another way of saying it is, when am I triggered into my habitual storylines, which uh, can be connected with negative thought patterns and suffering. And to know those well is really a key part of practice. And, uh, you know, the benefit is, is obvious, right? We can see, oh, you know, beforehand, whenever someone said something mean to me, I just reacted and now I can study my reactive patterns. Uh, it 's a big part of practice, and then then we also look at the more universal patterns of uh, particularly there can be a focus on when do i uh, when do I move into a kind of suffering when do when am I triggered into suffering when am i uh, I can also notice impermanence I can notice the flow of experience I can tune into that I can also. Notice, for example, when a strong sense of self is arising, in my experience, when, when I have a, what, I, what we've called in our previous weeks, looking at issues of self and not self, a thick sense of self. <coughs> when, am I, when, when is my self thick? So, I'm, so it's really like, okay, it's me, someone else, the world, and there's a strong sense of separation. We can look at that, these more universal patterns, which all human beings have to some, to a, some or a significant extent. So... And then the third foundation, thoughts and emotions, more obvious. Second foundation, very interesting. We looked at last time this, and I, and I encourage people to look uh, more carefully at the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral in experience. And especially encourage people to look at that during Thanksgiving meals. How many people checked out the pleasant experiences or possibly unpleasant experiences so associated with meals and thanksgiving so we can we can come back together and and talk some so very uh, very interesting practice this um core practice which is related to that teaching that I so often like to give the teaching of the two arrows remember which is the teaching that says that uh it's the buddha saying uh how does a uh practitioner differ from a non-practitioner in terms of relating to the unpleasant experiences. We all have unpleasant experiences, and the Buddha calls this the first arrow. We're all shot at times by an arrow, which could be unpleasant body sensations, unpleasant thoughts, unpleasant emotions, not treated fairly, difficult relationships, etc. We all have a certain amount of unpleasant experiences, And the Buddha asked, how does a practitioner differ from a non-practitioner? And he says, a non-practitioner, because of the presence of the first arrow, will tend to shoot a second arrow. And we could say either at oneself or another. So that would be when there's uh, unpleasant sensation in the body, we will tend, if we're not mindful, we will tend to react compulsively, contract uh, often, or to try to make it go away. Again, some of that has a biological basis and survival value, pulling away from the flame and so forth, but some of it is not helpful. Quite a bit of it is not helpful. And again, one of the examples that I bring out a lot is, is that uh, in when someone has a, a pain in the body and there's a contraction, and let's say there's chronic pain, that contraction can become Uh, actually much, much greater in terms of causing pain than the original stimulus. Doctors say 80%, maybe more, of what patients experience as physical pain is more the second arrow, it's the reaction, it's the tensing, it's the contraction, not to mention the way that leads to the second arrow manifesting through emotions, negative stories, and so forth, right? We can see how that second arrow is shot in a difficult interpersonal interaction where we uh, have something difficult happen and I blame myself, I blame the other, I tell a story, I, you know, the relationship is frozen, contracted for the next two weeks, right? That that's the second arrow or the second arrow is also uh, what happens in so many conflicts. I have a painful experience and I wanna, and I unconsciously react as if I could cause you a painful experience, as if that would defend myself or make it better. And again, this is the dynamic behind most conflicts in the world. We have received pain, we will inflict pain on you, as if that would make it stop, right? And there's a certain delusion there because of course the cycles continue. We can see that very clearly in certain interpersonal relationships or in certain conflicts at different parts of the world, you know. The conflicts just continue, particularly if there's some, you know, some degree of balance of the ability to inflict pain. You know, when the when there when there's a asymmetry, then the more powerful one will inflict pain, and the less powerful one will not be able to do it uh, in the same way. But typically, there are ways to do that, such as you know, in terms of conflicts. This would be it's often said that terrorism is the is the tool of those who have less power, right? And so, so we can see that. So it's more to see that this uh, teaching of the two arrows is a very uh, incisive teaching, which can make a lot of you know, sense at, the, at a foundational level of a lot of uh, what we do with the unpleasant. And then the counterpart would be we do something similar with the, with the pleasant, we grab hold of it. And so it's that teaching very connected with the... Uh, with the mindfulness of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, because what we're invited to do is really be with the pleasant, be with the unpleasant, see what the experiences are like. Be with pleasant food. I mentioned last time that I had a group that, uh, after I told them that uh, pleasure in itself is not at all the problem, and we had uh, 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 the next week, we uh, in our mindfulness, in our meditation group, we uh, ate chocolate for the whole time to induce pleasant experiences, <coughs> at least initially. <laughs> and, and to study, what is the pleasant like? It's very interesting. It's very interesting to actually study it. So we're invited to study, what is the pleasant like? What is the unpleasant like? And particularly um, invited to notice, with the pleasant or the unpleasant, is there a tendency to shoot that second arrow? We can call that reaction. Right? Is there a tendency with the pleasant To react by grabbing hold, by uh, saying, I want more of that with pleasant taste, with pleasant experiences, whether in the moment or in our thinking for the future. Again, the teaching is that this is particularly crucial because when we're not attentive, we will uh, grab hold when there's the pleasant, we will push away the unpleasant compulsively and unconsciously and with the neutral, because it doesn't seem to have either some payoff or some danger, we'll just space out. That's the teaching. And so it's a very, very crucial teaching, and we invited a several ways of working with it. You know, particularly to look for strong experiences of the pleasant or unpleasant, and to really notice, you know, to notice what the experiences of pleasant or unpleasant and to also, see if there tends to be some reaction. Something happens. Where does our mind go? Particularly with the strongly pleasant or strongly unpleasant. So very fundamental teaching. Uh, very powerful teaching. And very related, I think, to the, um, to the third foundation of mindfulness, which I want to introduce today and invite us to practice some um, in the next week. And then I'm, w- I'm going to come back to it also next week. And I'm going to, you know, um, next week I'll continue with the third foundation but also have room for us to talk about the second foundation I think they're quite related they're they're closely connected because often when we have uh, pleasant or unpleasant experiences it will uh, tend to trigger thoughts and emotions which then go in their own uh, direction so let me uh, let me talk then about the third foundation and then we'll open up uh, discussion just as see some of what we have personally explored uh, over Thanksgiving weekend. (laughs) Okay, so um, the third foundation uh, requires some degree of cultural translation from the text. I'll come back to the text in a moment. Uh, We typically teach the uh, third foundation of mindfulness at Spirit Rock and at uh, related centers We typically teach the third foundation of of mindfulness as mindfulness of thoughts and emotions. And it would be similar to the guidance I gave in the guided meditation, where we're simply asked to notice when there's thinking, notice when there are emotions. In our practice, we often use uh, the technique of labeling, which can be very, very helpful. Um, Initially, sometimes we're invited, just notice thinking, and then come back to the breath. But as we mature in our practice, it's helpful to actually have a more differentiated view of what kinds of thoughts and emotions are there. And this starts to help a lot with seeing patterns, seeing larger patterns. So we're invited to uh, have a set of labels, uh, not huge, but, but could be five or six or seven, of the, mo- of the most predominant experiences of thinking And of the most predominant experiences of emotion. So we might again have a very uh, short or brief set of labels, such as planning, remembering, fantasizing, and there may be some of what might be our personal top five uh, themes or more personal areas of thinking that we return to. It could be uh, this issue, you know, financial issue, or You know, health issue, or uh, you know, uh, could be a relationship issue, uh, or whatever. There might be uh, ones that we keep coming back to, and it's good to have a label for that, like discussion with Susan. Okay, and my my, you know, I notice that happening. I say discussion with Susan, and then usually that would lead the uh, thought to pass, and then I'd come back to the breath. And so similarly, we might have a a uh, small set of labels for basic emotions, sadness, happiness, joy, uh, anger, fear, anxiety, whatever. You know. And again, we might particularly focus on the most common ones. Um, with emotions, we sometimes would notice that they're there. Sometimes they would just pass, but emotions tend to stick around a little bit longer. And of course, emotions and thoughts are are related, are connected. uh, The emotions are often connected with stories, with thinking, with concepts and so forth. And so we would sometimes be with an emotion. And for example, we might have had a really difficult interaction. There might be anger when I sit. And here, I might be mindful of the actual experience of anger. I would actually just sit... It might be helpful for me to use the label, you know, maybe every minute or two, anger. And then I would just stay with it. What's it like in the body? What's it like in the um, uh, mind? What are the thoughts? What's the emotional energy like, you know? And uh, some of you know, in the uh, book that I did a few years ago, The Engaged Spiritual Life, I had one chapter on anger. And I described my own experience of being continually angry for 10 days at a retreat, uh, you know, some 18 hours a day. And and uh, I was just mindful of anger during that time. I just stayed with it. I was given a lot of encouragement to do that. And I just noticed the way it was in the body. And I actually, uh, at the end of uh, sitting or walking, I took some notes and then I kind of came back and had kind of like a map of my anger in it. You know, sometimes I could notice there was, you know, fire in the body, sometimes there was actually some nausea, sometimes I actually, it actually felt uncomfortable, sometimes it felt pleasant, very varied, you know, different storylines. The anger went into, you know, sometimes it, was, it seemed very petty, some, and I was just, you know, I was right, and, and and I was just like that, and sometimes when I stayed with the anger, it changed, and it opened up to sadness, and there was some sadness, beneath the anger. And sometimes when I stayed with the sadness, it opened up to love. That's quite interesting, you know, like you know, we could see that behind the anger was a real caring about, some, about something. And in, in this case, something that I didn't think was right that was happening some kind of something, some situation. And, um, and we can really stay with the emotions in that way. If they're strong, we can uh, be mindful and we can notice the tendencies to um, shoot the second arrow. Or to tell a story, to get hooked by a storyline. And so this practice is really, really crucial. I think I'm going to focus particularly on the mindfulness of thoughts and emotions in the rest of the time today. And next time, I think I'll focus uh, quite a bit on working skillfully with challenging thoughts and emotions, I think, which is uh, obviously a very important theme. Um, but here we're really just inviting ourselves not so much to respond or figure out what to do or to actually uh, do anything other than just study it. And that has tremendous value just to see. In some sense, for particularly uh, difficult thoughts and emotions, but probably for most thoughts and emotions, we've never studied them before. It's really interesting. I had never looked at anger. Mostly anger is a, what, Uh a trigger for action, right? Either to you know, depending on our conditioning, it could be to okay, I will definitely go into blaming mode, and stay there. Okay, that's okay. That's that's anger. Anger leads to blaming, and then I will just go there. It could be blaming myself or um, uh, blaming blaming another. So um, that would be the typical instruction for the third foundation of mindfulness. It would be to stay with. Uh, the emotion or thought if it lasts, and especially to be aware that it's happening in the present moment. And again, that, that system of very quiet labels, very soft in the mind with most of the attention on the actual experience. For most thoughts, the noticing and the labeling leads the thought to vanish, not continue. It would have to be a very strong thought for it to continue when we notice it. And so that's the basic practice. The, um, I want to say uh, give some account of the, of the actual text. And so I think I'll just read briefly, and if you want to follow along, the text of the Third Foundation of Mindfulness. And I, I'll give some account of what's there because it fills it out in certain ways that I think um, deepen our sense of how to practice with the Third Foundation uh, deepen in relationship to that initial sense of instru- set of instructions, which are very very good for taking us quite deeply, right? Just what I said just now, very you know very simple, straightforward, but can really take us. That was my probably my main guidance for working with thoughts and emotions for years and years. But there are also ways to deepen the experience somewhat, and I think if we actually give attention to the text, we can we can deepen in a few ways. So here. This is the translation by uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, a Western uh, scholar and monk who lives in, uh, I think, in uh, New Jersey now, and but comes often out to the Bay Area. I think sometimes comes to Spirit Rock, often goes to the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, and uh, a very sweet man, and uh, both a scholar and also has been a very strong force for bringing mindfulness out into the world he's the founder of what's called Buddhist Global Relief which brings uh, which brings relief efforts to people in need you know as an expression of the practice so he does this deep scholarship and d- you know and practice and also has that effort very interesting he's you know, very so a, a person worth reading and uh, listening to uh, if you if you can and so this is his translation and how bhikkhus, bhikkhus is the word for, for monk, we could just translate this as practitioner. How practitioners, does a practitioner abide contemplating mind as mind? And I'll, uh, maybe I'll, I'll give a gloss as I go through this. Um, because mind here is a translation of citta, uh, which is a word that actually uh, covers both uh, thought and emotion. And I would prefer a different translation. Uh, I would prefer because mind, often in Western culture, is separated from heart or emotion. And so I would since the connotation here covers thoughts and emotions, I would prefer something that communicated that, something like mind and heart. When I, if I would translate it, I would do something like that. But when you read mind, understand that it's not just meaning what we in Western culture would call the mental. So we see, we have to do quite a bit of cultural translation here. In the Asian languages, there's actually no word for emotion. It's a different, uh, as it were, analysis of experience. Uh, it's similar. There, there, the primary cut is between the body and what's called chitta, translated here as mind, which we would translate as uh, mind and emotion. So there, in in the Asian languages, the cut is into two kinds of experiences, bodily experiences and chitta experiences, which means thoughts and emotions. We sometimes make just that cut into two, but generally dating from, certainly from the Greeks, you know, 2,500 years ago, there's more of a division into three types of experiences, body, emotion, and thought. And that tends to be the Western cultural distinction. And so we have to do translation here. That's why I was just saying what I was saying. That's quite interesting. And uh, it's also interesting. I don't know, you know, it's interesting because the studies of the brain uh, have a division into three. I don't, I'm not wanting to say that that means, okay, the Western view is right. <laughs> but the, we, the, the view of the three parts of the brain are in, you know, in the, the reptile brain, more connected with the body, the limbic system, more connected with emotion, and the neocortex, more connected with the mind. Interesting, right? I'm not going to go so much into those correlations, but uh, in any case, we have to, in reading this text, know that they're not using the same general conceptual system as we are. And so, when you read mind, uh, understand thought and emotion. That would be my suggestion. Here, a practitioner understands uh, mind or mind and heart affected by lust. And here, it's really the word is raga. It it could be greed, desire, lust. I I think that's, again, I would translate a little differently because lust often has sexual connotations. And the connotations here are with any kind of wanting. It's really, it's way beyond simply the sexual. I mean, that would be... one part of a subset, but that's so so others might translate this as greed or as wanting, or as sometimes as as desire. Um, but I'll, I'll just continue reading this. Um, Here a practitioner understands mind affected by lust, as mind affected by lust, mind unaffected by lust, as mind unaffected by lust. He understands mind affected by hate, as mind affected by hate and mind es- unaffected by hate as mind unaffected by hate he understands mind affected by delusion as mind affected by delusion and mind unaffected by delusion as mind unaffected by delusion he understands contracted mind as contracted mind and distracted mind as distracted mind he understands exalted mind as exalted mind and unexalted mind as unexalted mind he understands surpassed mind as surpassed mind and unsurpassed mind as unsurpassed mind He understands concentrated mind as concentrated mind, and unconcentrated mind as unconcentrated mind. He understands liberated mind as liberated mind, and unliberated mind as unliberated mind. And I I won't go into the second paragraph, but just to say that what we have here are actually uh, three sets of instructions. The first set of instructions is what we might call mindfulness of when there's greed, hatred, or delusion, or the absence of it. The second set of instructions has to do with contracted mind or distracted mind, which uh, contracted mind is generally taken to be some kind of sleepiness or kind of shutting down of the system. Sleep, in, in the text, it would be called sloth and torpor. And, and distracted mind is the restless mind going every which way. That's the second set of instructions. Third set of instructions has to do with different levels of concentration in meditation. You know, ranging from uh, very concentrated to uh, less concentrated. So they're really instructions for being aware of that. Probably most relevant for us is the first set of instructions, and that's what I want to, to uh, talk about. second set are valuable too, to know when we're distracted. What's interesting here is that the text is saying, give particular attention to certain kinds of mind states. And in particular, be aware of when there is uh, kind of this compulsive wanting, which is the raga or the, the uh, translated as lust or greed. Be aware of when there's some kind of a compulsive pushing away, which is, could be translated as hatred or aversion. Uh, hatred is a little strong. It's not, not always that, but some kind of strong pushing away of something through hatred, through anger, through could be through um, different kinds of thoughts. And then the third is delusion. It's the not knowing what's there in experience. And what's interesting here is that we're being asked to particularly look out for these three. And can you see the connection with the practice of feeling tone? Remember the practice of feeling tone? It's saying, watch for pleasant because where there's not mindfulness, pleasant will trigger greed, or wanting. That's, and then that will, as it were, take us away. right? And where there is um, unpleasant and we're not attentive to it, the, un- the unpleasant will trigger a kind of compulsive pushing away. That's, th- that's why we want to study pleasant and unpleasant. And so here it's saying, more or less, okay, look out for... What happens if you didn't notice pleasant and unpleasant so (laughs) well? And maybe these thoughts, these greedy thoughts or emotions, or these really aversive thoughts are taking charge in your mind. Really look for those, because it's taken that those are the roots of suffering. That's, that's That's the core teaching. And so if we really can have, as it were, our radar out for these kind of thoughts and emotions, we uh, start to say, I really got triggered by what that person said. Let me bring my mindfulness to it. I'm really feeling aversion right now. Or, Or, you know, the Thanksgiving example, I really feel that was a really good piece of pie. I'm feeling my mind taken over by wanting. And I have my internal debate Should I or shouldn't I? You know, it's, um, you know, I told myself I have to really just be moderate with eating, but it's Thanksgiving. And that was such a good piece of pie. And I'll do a little more exercise tomorrow, okay? (laughs) Okay, I don't know if, I don't know if, We probably each have some version of that, right? When there's something strong that we want. So here the invitation is to, you know, not so much to study the pleasant and unpleasant, but to really note the uh, presence of greed or um, some kind of strong aversion. And what's interesting is that these are not so hard to be attentive to. If we say, if we set our radar up as it were programmed to watch these things, we often can watch them fairly, we can know that they're there. You see, so what, what this, uh, this practice is, is asking us to do in this particular section, which I think, again, I'm talking about as a refinement or deepening of the most general instruction to just track m- thoughts and emotions. It's saying, in particular, track these kinds of thoughts and emotions. Track the thoughts and emotions connected with what we would call reactivity, either the grabbing hold kind or the pushing away kind, and, just to, and to study what they're like. Look at what the experience of wanting her greed is. You know, I, I mean, I've mentioned from time to time that, uh, I think in 2001, Diana Winston and I offered our class on greed management, which I talk about sometimes. You know, and we uh, offered this class in the East Bay on greed management, and we had uh, very few people signed up, <laughs> uh, but nonetheless it was a really, um, uh, I didn't care about the number. We had two teachers and five students, <laughs> and we had a five-week class, and I've mentioned sometimes that the final exam was silent walking meditation in the newly opened Bed Bath & Beyond in El Cerrito, <laughs> 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 which um, was a very, very interesting experience. You, you know, do silent walking meditation through a you know, store like Bed Bath & Beyond or through maybe through a grocery store or through, you know, just interesting, interesting experience, right? Do it, try it next time. Go into a store where there, you know there are things that you want or might want and do silent walking meditation and track your mind. That would be an application. I didn't have this on my list of practices, but that would be an application of the third foundation of mindfulness. And and so we, uh, very interestingly, one of the most interesting things that we really invited people to look and track what is the actual experience of greed like? What does it feel like when you're greedy? And I hadn't really looked at it carefully, and what I found out in that looking were some things that, you know, when you think about it could make some sense, but that when I was, when I was greedy or when someone else is greedy, what we found was that it was very, very self-centered, My satisfaction of my desire is almost all that matters in life at that moment. There's very little sense of the future or of consequences. It's very, very, I want this. uh, Other people's uh, wishes don't really matter. Only the satisfaction of my wish matters. And... uh, I'm not thinking about consequences. You know, we know what happens when we have an economic system that is organized in that way, to a significant extent, right? Sh- lack of attention to long-term consequences, right? So that's a little gloss, <laughs> 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 little social commentary here and there, you know, and um, uh, but we could see that in our, in ourselves when when there is uh, when. When, uh, when there's greed in our own minds, what is, what is, and I, we found that. So this is an invitation, really, to study uh, study uh, what the experience of greed is like. What's the experience of aversion? like? could be the anger, like I was talking about. We really hang out with it. We notice it. And all of this is inviting mindfulness so that we can be wise in how we respond to what we're experiencing so that we can have a response which hopefully doesn't just follow habitual patterns when we're triggered by these things. So just one or two words to finish, and I want to open things up. Um, Delusion is harder to study. (laughs) Because as Donald Rumsfeld once said, (laughs) we don't know what we don't know. (laughs) Do you remember that famous press conference where he said, there are known knowns and unknown knowns, there are the known knowns. There are the known unknowns. There are the unknowns. Okay. Anyway, there was once a press conference. He has a strong philosophical background. <laughs> so, anyway, but um, I won't go further. <laughs> I want to get further into that commentary. But he, there was a press conference once where he talked like that. He was. No, it was all a re- uh, basically a reference to talk about how the policy was good about weapons of mass destruction, which were not yet found, but which actually the fact that we haven't found them doesn't mean they don't exist. Okay, so anyway, um, so he was, <laughs> anyway, um, hmm, I'm not sure why that's coming up, but <laughs> 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 um, in any case, delusion is harder to, harder to study. In the present moment, because often delusion is not knowing that we don't know. It's interesting, right? Sometimes you, you know, one way that we can, one aspect of delusion is when we just feel confused. That we can study. We can know I feel confused. But certain kinds of delusion are more unconscious and more subtle. So it's a little harder to study. So this foundation of mindfulness is saying, Uh, with this first set of instructions, and I'll go into the second and third next time, uh, in addition to talking particularly about how to work skillfully with challenging thoughts and emotions. But um, here we're really asked to give special attention to those reactive tendencies to really want in a strong way, to push away in a strong way, or delusion. Interestingly, I'll close with this, we're also asked to know when they're absent. And that's very interesting. When is there a lack of greed? And we might say there might be contentment or there might be generosity or there just might be uh, an evenness, a balance. We're we're not just asked to focus on the problematic states, but we're also asked to focus on the beautiful states or their opposites. Um, And to know this, and this is actually a subtle practice it's actually to tune in to all those parts of the day where we're actually pretty balanced and we are f- relatively free. We tend uh, so much to focus on the negative, right? Or to focus on the problems. And this practice is actually say, be aware when there is not greed. Be aware when there is not hatred. It could be that there is a basic simple caring or kindness. Or basically there could be love, whatever there might be and be aware when there's not delusion. And this is a very interesting practice because it actually helps us tune in to how much we're actually present and awake. And in some sense, in those moments at least, might have a significant amount of freedom. It's tuning in to the, par- to the way that we're actually maybe a lot freer and better off than we sometimes think. Because we, we do focus so much, not all of us, but many of us, Uh, I think this is certainly my condition. We tend to focus on the problems. And this is an invitation to focus also on where there's actually beautiful states, awakened states and become more aware that they're there. And so I would say, just in closing, that we have the sheet that's one of the handouts which lists quite a number of ways to practice. I think there are 13 ways to practice. Uh, that are listed, but just take one or two of them for the next week, or it could just be the general practice. I'm just gonna look at, I'm gonna really study thoughts and emotions in my meditations in daily life and really try to know particularly the ones that are the most prominent. What are my top five? And really track them when they come up. That would be a great way to practice. Really notice what's there, give a special emphasis to that. Could also give a special emphasis to noticing when there's greed, hatred, or delusion any of those in experience. And really, you know, could start out at the beginning of the day, say, I want to really attend to this during, during my day, when, it, when these experiences become strong and have my radar up for them. You know, and then when they come, just study them. Again, this is, we're here, we're, we're just focusing on mindfulness, not so much on what's a skillful response or what should I do or what should I say to this person. We're not doing that. We're just saying, let me track it, be aware of it, study it. That has its own rewards, and and so and then we can and, and maybe a third practice might be if this interests you to really try to notice when they are the opposites of those states when there's actually what's called in the text non-greed or generosity or um, uh, contentment you know which is I think a lot of our day you know we're just relatively content I, I imagine and to really notice oh I'm content let me just feel what that's like oh contentment. <laughs> you know, and it really can change one's view sometimes of experience. Again, uh, probably yeah. how many of us tend to focus on the negative? Anyone? <laughs> okay. Okay. I hope by that question I wasn't focusing on the negative too much. <laughs> okay. Okay. So um, we have some, my suggestion is just take one practice, maybe two, just take one that appeals to you and focus on it during the week and then we'll come back and continue with this. And if you feel drawn to continue with the practice of feeling done, that would also be fine to really focus on that. They're all wonderful practices. And ideally, they could. this could, you know, if, if we were, I don't know, if we were, a, you know, a, if we were doing a six-month retreat, we could focus on each of these foundations of mindfulness for a month each, and it would be profitable and helpful. Let's just sit for a moment, then we'll talk together. (laughs) So any questions, clarification, how to practice, anything? Debbie, please. Yeah. sort of like hashing it out kind of. Yeah. Just kind of note it, see what it feels like in the body. Yeah. And then maybe do the analysis later. Yeah, the question is about uh is it recommended in meditation to contemplate one's response, let's say when one's triggered or something like that, mm-hmm. or is it m- is it better to maybe do that later and mostly focus on what the experience is in the body, the mind and so forth? Yeah, that you you're right. Uh that, that it can be very helpful to contemplate a response. It's very natural, of course, to do that in the meditation, but it's helpful to have the discipline to really just stay with the experience because that helps us go more deeply. And, you know, we may, if we instantly start thought thinking of a response, it might be more superficial. And it's better, in, and certainly it would not be f- following these instructions or instructions to mindfulness, which can be the, a foundation for skillful response but it's not the same thing as a skillful response. And that's what I'm going to focus on more next time. I'm, I think it's important to divide them and to really have time when we're just mindful. So this is, this is challenging sometimes because we want to, of course, resolve issues. But so if you can, just stay with the mindfulness and say, you know, you notice something, a difficult situation and just say, okay, what's it feel like? What's my mind doing? Let me just stay with the uh, if I'm having aversion, let me, okay, what's that like? Let me just stay with that. And, uh, you know, again, one instruction I didn't give is we can also watch things come and go. It's very interesting. You know, I mentioned this, I think, last time with feeling tone to actually see how things which are really compelling, if we stay with them enough, they will pass. You know, prob- I'm sure we've all noticed that. You know, you notice something. I really want this. I really want this. And for whatever reason, you don't act on it. And then at a certain point, I'm not sure I really want this. <laughs> right. Anyone anyone notice that? <laughs> I think it's just common experience, right? So okay, please, uh, Nancy. I have a question about the relationship between feeling tone and judgment. Yeah. Um, I think last week you talked about the fact that using the Montavani example, yeah. experiences <laughs> do not contain the feeling tone. Yeah. The feeling tone comes from our reactions. To the yeah. Experience. Mm-hmm. So if you can just experience experiences purely yeah. without attaching a feeling tone to them, is that a way out of that pattern, my my pattern of yeah. reactivity? Yeah, so the, the question is uh, how to work with a pattern of reactivity. Might it be helpful to uh, just in some way experience um, whatever the experience is uh, without even having the feeling tone present. In, in, in a sense, uh, experience almost everything is neutral. And, that, and the, the the suggestion was that there can be some kind of implicit or explicit uh, judgment, you know, the evaluation that is contained with the feeling tone. Right? Is that more or less the question? And it's an interesting question In the teachings, I think feeling tone is taken to be a primitive level, which is a kind of a given. And so there's actually not room for uh, practice in a way which would eliminate the feeling tone. And as I mentioned, pleasant or unpleasant feeling tone is not taken to be a a problem per se. It's what we do with it. Uh, Another thing would be, I mean, even though feeling tone doesn't necessarily uh, cause or let's say a given experience or a given object or content doesn't necessarily get associated with pleasant or unpleasant. There are a lot of them that are highly correlated. Right, mm-hmm. such as an injury, right? I mean, uh, music or food, there is there's more variability. An injury or, you know, certain experiences in the body would have less variability. I mean, again, Uh, how much it's, uh, how intense it is might be a matter of internal factors. So I think there are always internal factors which are going to influence it. But, uh, and I, I think that no experience, no object in itself necessarily leads to a certain feeling tone, but there's some that if we, you know, if, if everyone pinches your thumb, you know, around your joint for one minute, for most of us, it would be unpleasant after a while, you know, um, so, but that—that's—that's that's not really the main point you're making. It's really, can we, in some sense, uh, if we eliminate a certain uh, uh, judgment or idea about what we're experiencing, might that change the experience? I think that's right. We that that we can do. So I think actually, feeling tones may change in their intensity as we notice what's triggered by the feeling tone. So, the example I gave last time, one example I gave was, when I was young, uh, I didn't like to eat eggs. The sight of eggs triggered unpleasant feeling tone and quite a few ideas. (laughs) 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 And over the years, those ideas lessened, to the point where, when I was an adult, I was willing to eat eggs. right? And the feeling tone, the experience of the feeling tone changed, actually. And it wasn't so unpleasant, right? So so I think that that points to a way that if we actually study the triggering, um, uh, sometimes the thoughts will shift, you know. Particularly, you know, some obvious examples, If I, again, similar to the the example of egg. If I have an association with a person that's very unpleasant, because I haven't resolved some conflict I have with that person, and then I actually work on that conflict, the feeling tone with the person may may shift, right? Right. And so I think that's that to me is actually one one thing that your question is pointing to, that the that when we actually look to the ideas connected with feeling tone, and look at them or work with them in some way. That may really lead to a very different experience of feeling tone, which I think that's is getting at somewhat what you were talking about. And uh, and if we had no ideas about anything, uh, we might experience things in a different way. Yeah. Anything else? Maybe uh, last one I think, and then we'll. This is kind of a sidebar. (laughs) A sidebar. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no word for emotion, is that the case Let's see. The question is: uh, Is there no current word for emotion? Uh, I don't. I don't. You know, I'm not an expert on contemporary Asian linguistics. <laughs> oh shucks. <laughs> okay. Maybe next week I'll work on that. <laughs> uh, I know in the in the languages of the text, and in general usage, there is that different way of um, organizing experience, you know, so that you know, I remember hearing uh, Larry Yang um, talk about his father, who I think, I don't know if he was born in China, but he was uh, he really came out of more of a uh, Chinese, certainly a mo- way more of a culture a Chinese cultural set. And he would say, when he, was, when he was thinking, I think that this is true, and he would, he would touch his heart. Right? And that's quite common in a you know, in, in number of Asian cultures. And it's, there's something like more of a sense of heart-mind. Right? Or like, where is the location of your thinking? If you asked uh, many Asian people, they would point to their heart, And that was what Larry's father's example pointed to. Again, I don't think it's one's right or wrong. It's different, but we have to do cultural translation because we don't organize things like that. I mean, some of us might. Some of us might really have, uh, I think we're maybe moving in that direction, because I I do know a lot of the scholarship about emotions from the last 30 years. I do know that literature. And in that literature, there has been a strong emphasis on the way that thoughts and emotions are connected. In the mainstream culture, we often have the sense that thoughts and emotions are disconnected. Right? That um, you know that uh, um, uh, you know that it's possible to have unemotional thinking, or that you know when I'm taken over by emotion, it's just raw emotion, right? And we have that, especially in terms of certain um, philosophers or cultural expressions. There's often been a view that uh, the cognitive and the emotional are are separate. That is not that that doesn't hold up. It doesn't hold up to a science and it doesn't hold up to actually looking closely at experience, you know, and and we can see that uh, you know, we you know, sometimes we say, you know, we say to someone if there's a problem, oh, I feel this, you know, I feel this emotion as if it's sort of a given and as if it doesn't have anything to do with my thinking. But in actuality, when we look closely, now a lot of this is at the level of cultural conditioning. So for example, in our culture, anger has a certain model that's culturally c- conditioned, but it involves quite a bit of thinking. With anger, there tends to be an opposition of self and other, you know, and there might be a tendency to blame the other. Now, anger in other cultures looks quite different than that. There's a certain different organization of thought. And so when I have anger, there are going to be a lot of thoughts, and c- there's a whole conceptual framework which comes with fully developed anger. Now, again, I don't want to get too much into the subtleties. Anger, as I'm talking about it, is a culturally constructed emotion. There also are more primitive levels of anger, which we sometimes call affect, which are more universal and more connected with the body. So that when people have studied um, facial expressions connected with anger, even with the very, very different cultural constructions, the facial expressions tend to be the same. There's something more universal at a more bodily level, but when it starts to go into how is this understood culturally, it's quite different. And so, and that's where there's a whole level of often unconscious or cultural... Um, uh, mod- there's a cultural conceptual model of what anger means. Does that make some sense? It's very interesting. So the the point of it is is that I think we're moving we're moving towards seeing the interconnection of all of this of thought and emotion and in terms of I I imagine that will happen some in Asian languages and Asian cultures as well I mean it's kind of increasingly becoming a world culture yeah but it's inter- very interesting isn't it and it's, it's interesting that we do with this third foundation of mindfulness have to do quite a bit of cultural translation because with the text, because it's just a little different system than what we than what we have been brought up with. Yeah. Okay. So can you, um, you can ask one, but I I will give a, probably a very brief answer. May I ask you after the class? Then? Uh, yeah, for a longer answer after the <laughs> class <laughs> is better. For the short answer, my arms hurt constantly. Yeah. But Yeah. How can I make that feeling of pain go away? So the question of how can I make a certain feel unpleasant feeling go away? So this, this is, um, this is a, uh, I'll get, I can give a good short answer. This is something we'll look at more next time. This is the distinction between how can I be mindful of the experience and what's a skillful response. Those are different. A skillful response might be to be mindful some, and if, you, if it's very clear, your wisdom totally tells you, and this would be the case in many situations, it's good to try to lessen the pain, then uh, you could do that in a variety of ways. Yeah. But that would, be, that would be more from the perspective of, of what's wise, and that's distinct from can I be mindful and notice both what it's like, maybe you've done that enough already, but uh, you might do that and to notice what kind of thoughts are triggered by the situation, what do, where do I go with that? And maybe you've done that enough and you're ready to act, but, uh, but that we would distinguish those two, uh, those two areas. Yeah. So um, let's just sit for a moment and invite your intention for how you may work with thoughts and emotions, or if you wish with a uh, feeling tone in the next week, and we'll really come back with these themes and bring in bring in a few further uh, aspects. But we'll invite you to stay with this. So, what's what's your intention for the next next week? And then we uh, dedicate the merit, very traditional. We may these teachings, may our practices, may our time together uh, be a benefit to ourselves, be a benefit to those with whom we're in contact. And ultimately, in known and sometimes mysterious ways, may all our gatherings be of benefit to all others. So thank you for your kind attention. I hope there was a pleasant feeling tone for a good part of the. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.